Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast, where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about whether a cat's claws are tools. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bobinger. With me on the line, as always, from Princeton, New Jersey, is my co-host, David Will. David, how's it going? Hey, Charles, I'm doing well. It's great to be back at Princeton. Excellent, excellent. Uh, this is episode 10. We are going to approach a difficult subject because, as we've laid out for you in the past, uh, we want to give you a perspective that you're not getting somewhere else. We want to do something other than just rant about how terrible the other side is. But for our 10th episode, we thought it was important to take a step back and talk about Donald Trump. It's a difficult thing because so many stories of him could just evolve into, well, he said this, and this is clearly misogynist, and he said this, and this is clearly racist, and he has these supporters, and they're clearly racist, and he's supporting this goal, and that's clearly racist. That's not something we think we can give you any value on. We think that our unique ability to add value would come from a broader historical perspective of what he represents on a personal level. Because if you go back through history, you find lots of leaders with personal characteristics very similar to Donald Trump's, and they very rarely go well. So we're basically going to make this another segment in our On Leadership series, where we will be talking about the red flags for a leader's character. These are different from standard vices. For example, Bill Clinton had um, you know, quite a bit of uh, sexual vices, but... They didn't affect governing except to the extent that there became an investigation about it. Uh, a president who drinks a fair amount, as long as he does it in you know, a reasonable context, not one where he's like on duty, as it were, or would be launching missiles. I assume a president probably can't get too drunk at any particular time. But those are the kinds of personal vices people want to talk about when they talk about character. And I don't think that that's really a useful way to talk about character for a leader, because I think it's these characteristics we're going to go through that are uh, a bit more important for whether you can be a successful leader. David, what do you think? Um, so I agree that this is, uh, you know, there's just no benefit to having um, yet another, actually, I saw Charles Blow wrote a uh, column recently that was like, you know, uh, yet another, let's remember to be outraged by everything mm -hmm. that's happening. And um, whether or not I haven't read that article yet, you know, whether or not it's important to continue to put stuff like that out there, uh, there are people putting that stuff out there and we're not going to do a better job of it than they are. Um, but as you said, looking at um, just trying to trying to analyze it in the way that you described it, you know, I think we can do some good uh, for those purposes. My focus is, you know, in the, in the same way that we talked about leadership before, um, you know, my focus is often on, and I think it makes sense for it to be in this episode as well, um, the interplay between the leader and the led, you know, the followed and the followers. Um, because in our democracy which is still a functioning democracy. It is still a democracy where the leaders make their case, but we, the citizens, can choose what we want. You know, we can engage in the system, we can disengage in the system, and a lot comes from that. So these personal vices, uh, I think it's good to focus on those, 
Um, but my goal is going to be to try to remember and think about, um, as we talk about those vices, the effect that they have on the way people respond. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's sort of my goal. For and that's me. a very good point because what separates um, some of the characteristics that have not historically been damning to a leader, such as promiscuity, is that it doesn't really lead to that much interplay with, with the followers. You know, that doesn't right, actually right. affect the leadership in such a direct way. What we want to talk it, about here are the, the characteristics that really do relate to how somebody runs a government and how historically that has tended to go poorly. Because if you go back through history, I mean, you're going to have – if you go back more than 100 years or even 50 years, it's going to be very hard to find a lot of rulers that didn't have some number of mistresses. Right. Like that was just a very common thing uh, in the past. And um, – yeah, it's to an extent that while we consider that a character flaw now, it's a personal morality character flaw, not one that affects leadership. Necessarily, it can if if it if it goes too far. Right, and but you know, as you said about um, you know about Bill Clinton, um, it was a moment in which uh, there was a political moment in which that vice became a live vulnerability for him um that led to not quite incapacitating but certainly uh limiting the effectiveness of of his government um and that was all due to the reaction of everyone around him you know he did the same thing more or less that uh, generations of presidents and leaders in general had done before him, but the reaction to what he did changed the nature of 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 his of his vice and made it politically active um, right. in a way that now you know someone like Obama, um, you know you you you're I mean at this point we're just going to have to have more Obamas. Um, in order to govern effectively in the past, you could be a JFK, you know, moving the goalposts a little or not goalposts, but changing the, the, the scope a little bit. You know, when I, I read an FDR, uh, I'm sorry, um, Eisenhower mm. biography and <laughs> it was a fascinating detail. He spent the night before D-Day with his mistress. Yeah. I remembered having read that once and that's, I think it was the and, only reference to Eisenhower even having a mistress that I'd ever come across. And, yeah, and and the, I mean the mistress was apparently, I mean it was a huge issue, and he almost it almost ended his political career before it began because he was thinking about staying in England with her, um, but you know the again the people around him basically said like we will not allow you to do this, um, so anyway point being they swept it under the you know swept it under the rug, it was basically forgotten historians remembered it. People like us who are nerds and you know care about all those details can can go and look it up, um, but it was not ever a live political issue at that right. point. And now, post Clinton, you know, thank God Barack Obama um, was the honorable, disciplined man that he was, and we just didn't have those issues for the last eight years. And George W. Bush as well. I mean, and George W. Bush exactly. Another right. man with an impeccable personal life who also didn't even drink at all. 
Yeah, which well, is true I mean, of Donald Trump, having... by the way. Just to be clear that we're being fair about this, Donald Trump doesn't drink or smoke or use um, drugs. Right, which is, which is a very interesting uh, fact to grapple with, or it's a it's a it's a you know it's a complicating factor if you talk about personal vice. Right, that he exhibits these things that for most people, if you talked about someone never drinking or um, smoking, you know, someone who only sleeps four hours a night and works all the time, you know, you, for most people, you describe that as discipline. And it is strange to even think about using that word um, in the context of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And that's part of why it is necessary to separate which characteristics actually affect your leadership. Although with the Bill Clinton thing, there's the interesting side note that we talk about tribalism a lot on this show. And one of the big influences of tribalism on Bill Clinton is the way that people on the left still lionize him when we very rarely stop and think about how some of his behavior, if it were done by a Republican, we would consider, um, you know, highly um, abusive, highly problematic because situations like the Lewinsky affair involved an underling. And if this had happened with a Republican, we would we would be making a bigger we would be making a bigger deal out of um, out of the way that that. Yeah, out of the way that that comes off in a gender right. based context. Well, this is and this is one of the things that I think um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the vanishing center. You know, where is the center? Where are these, you know, voters who allegedly care about uh, common ground and sort of fair play and that sort of thing? Um, and I think one of the reasons that those people seem to disappear is because, um, you know, conservatives who would come out and say, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton is a, just a gross thug because he, you know, sort of wielded his authority and abused all these women throughout his life. And Hillary Clinton is is just the scum of the earth because she enabled him throughout this entire process. Uh, when they see liberals, Democrats, people of the left in America, wrap themselves in the banner of women's rights and equal pay and whatever po particular political issue, but then rally around those two people it makes them crazy. It's like, you know, just, the, the degree of hypocrisy that that, um, that that seems to entail makes them crazy because there's just no discussion of it. There's no, there's no place that that, like, okay, I understand what you see, and here's a reason that what you see is not what you think it is. That's not, that never happens. It's just like, you know, we're the, we're the party that cares about women's issues, and yet, and all the, everything that would follow the end yet is just ignored. Yeah. Um, and I think to be fair, you said people, you said the left, I think actually the, the left, um, cares and cared more about that issue in this last election cycle than most mainstream Democrats, because I mean, there, there were, this was a consideration. This was, you know, by the I left, mean, I meant Democrats in general. I wasn't using just the further left. Oh, yeah, no, but I mean, but yeah. But, I mean, this, is, this is the issue is we have to be very careful about uh, these terms that we use, um, in part because my understanding is, you know, a lot of young people who are anti-Clinton, part of the reason that they, you know, 
that they never, that some people uh, resisted her candidacy was precisely for this reason, that they said, wait a second, what does it mean to be a feminist? If I'm a feminist, you know, how can I support this woman who had this relationship with her husband and, um, you know, supported him as he wielded, you know, as he um, preyed upon the various women in his life, including Monica Lewinsky, who, you know, Hillary Clinton, what was it called? Like a Looney Tunes or something. There was some, there was some little thing that she said about um, Monica Lewinsky to kind of denigrate her character that like doesn't accord with this current um, left-wing commitment to uh, side with the victim in sexual harassment cases under all circumstances. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is, we're getting a little bit further afield, but the, the things that are like the things that constitute personal vices, uh, the extent to which they are vices and the extent to which they have political and sort of, um, national ramifications obviously change over time for a variety of reasons, because even supporters, you know, people who would under other circumstances and were in the past, supporters of a particular politician um, change their perspective over time. And the political salience of those character traits shift dramatically. And we were children when the Bill Clinton stuff happened. So as we got older and started to understand more about power dynamics and the ways in which Bill Clinton was being predatory, I mean, by that point, we were sort of committed to liking Bill Clinton. And I think that that means that in the future, people of our generation would be much harsher on any upcoming Democrat who does anything remotely similar. I mean, Anthony Weiner is an example of where he was dumped pretty fast by people once we found out yeah. some of the stuff he was up to. And then he came back to destroy Western civilization. Uh, right. So, well, but, so um, yeah, I mean, the Weiner thing, I'll just, let's just not really get into that. Um, because he seems like a real loser. I mean, I even remember entering the house hearing stories about him. Um, you know, when I was entering the, the staff of a uh, congressional staff, hearing stories of just what an utter jerk this guy was. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, totally pointless stuff. Like, like Trump, basically like Trump. I mean, humiliating people to make himself seem uh, like the boss, you know, just to show that he was the boss. Really no different from Trump, which actually now gets us into... I was going to say, that's a wonderful segue because there yeah. are no tangents. <laughs> um, I, no. I, I did, however, I, I'm sorry before the segue, though. Um, I did want to say that uh, there are multiple ways of interpreting the Clinton episode, though, that, you know, I was I was speaking in the voice of you know, evangelicals, let's say, people who cared, really cared, but from the right about Clinton's infidelity and womanizing. And um, the point is that they saw that in a particular lens, you know, through a particular lens, and they had a particular reaction, that there was no attempt to um, blend the horizons of different perspectives, you know, where people from the left saw that and said, we don't care what you think because you guys hate women anyway. You know, and, and then the people on the right who were saying, but wait a second, this man is a womanizer. He's abusing these women. 
you know, and you're the ones who claim to talk about women's issues. How dare you, you know, claim to be the woman's party? Like, so there was just a total, total right. disconnect when there could, there could have been something shared mm. to discuss, but I'm not right now saying, you know, what I think right. of like, I mean, I think just to say briefly, part of the problem is that to go after the left for that, they would have to concede that the left was right about some of those issues, which that's they actually, didn't yeah, really that's want to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. No. Right. Where there's just, there's so little productive, um, there's so few productive outcomes of these conversations because there's no recognition that the other side might have a point right? or that they're approaching any particular issue with any good faith. And so, yeah, it's just uh, many opportunities are left on the table and spoil. Anyway, with that. Yeah. Let's, and let's... with that, I mean, part of this, we, I have a new segue for us. This is where <laughs> when we talk about the never Trumpers, that's how when we point to people on the right who have taken very staunchly anti-Trump stances, that's how we can sort of say, OK, we haven't completely lost our perspective on Trump because the people who by instinct would not want to say these things have grudgingly brought themselves to the conclusion that their party has gone you know, over the edge. Right. And I think and, and, and a lot of the characteristics we're about to start talking about are the characteristics that troubled uh, these people in particular during the campaign. So I put together a list of characteristics. We might not go through all of them. Some of them are broadly similar to others. They're in no particular order in part because I feel that returning to a concept that's slightly different can yield a different uh, answer. And the way that the brain, when it tries to do something it's done before, tries to do it the same way. And if it's forced to do it slightly differently, that it can come up, it uses different neural pathways. So I believe. Anyway, um, point number one, we're going to talk about... Uh, vindictiveness and score settling. This comes into what you talked about, the need to humiliate people. Whenever we read about a third world country that is trying to get its um, its affairs in order after a civil war or after colonialism ends, one of the biggest red flags we see when we read it in the news that tells us that this is not going to go well is when we see that the new people in power use their authority for score settling or dealing with pre-existing grievances against people they didn't like. You saw this uh, in Iraq, certainly, where suddenly you have, uh, a you have a majority that had been disempowered for so long. It gains power, and what it needs to do is to be able to forgive things that happened in the past, not because things that happened to them were acceptable, but because it's the only way to move forward. And if you decide that what's more important is being vindictive and settling scores, which maybe you call justice, but if you're dealing with grievances, that's a red flag. Right. Yeah, Iraq is a good example. Um, and I mean, it's a good example for, you know, for all the reasons you described, although the, the tragedy there is that um, it's not as though the she just decided collectively like, Oh, now is our opportunity to settle all the scores. Um, they were helped along in that process by, um, Sunni extremists who, um, who knew that if they carefully timed spectacular uh, attacks, um, that they could provoke that reaction and force, uh, cleavage cleavages that would, spoil the otherwise great opportunity where, you know, Sunnis and Iraqis, uh, Sunni and Shi Iraqis as Iraqis um, could say, oh, my 
goodness gracious me, like, look at this moment, this new generational moment where no Iraqi in, you know, in our memory has had this capacity to create a new society to serve all of our interests collectively. Let's come together and take advantage of this moment. Like that was what, you know, that, that, that type of reaction was available to the whole society. And a lot of people were reacting in that way. And, um, you know, this, uh, innate human capacity for, uh, hurt and rage and the desire for vengeance was waiting there for the extremists to come and provoke that reaction. Right. And that's why when we talked about Lincoln a few episodes ago on leadership, yep. one of the things he did, he made a point when the war was drawing to a close to say, we're going to have to bind up our wounds together. We're going to have to be fellow countrymen again. This isn't about humiliating the South. It's not just about destroying the South. It's about the fact that now... He, and he and you know that's why he he did a little bit of both sidesism, a little bit of evasiveness on who's really responsible, right. because it was clearly the South. Um, and <laughs> I know I would. By the way, this would be a great opportunity to pause and inform you all that I've created a Gmail account to direct listener feedback to. We're Fear, Honor, and Interest Podcast, all one word at gmail dot com. Again, that's Fear, Honor, and Interest Podcast at gmail dot com. So uh, anyway. Lincoln tried very hard not to result in this area of vindictiveness and score settling. And that's the one area where, where, you know, Robert E. Lee comes through looking a little bit better is that you've got Jefferson Davis. Who's like, no, let's go into the Hills and fight them and you know, just be awful and keep making these kinds of attacks. And then you've got General Lee who says, no, it's over. Um, that's the one thing he did. That's worth some degree of being, of, of being honored, but not the way people do honor it. And to avoid yeah. getting into too much of a statue controversy, because that's well, its own little thing. Um, well, sorry, yeah, go the, ahead. the fundamental point that, we're, that we mean to discuss here is the best leaders are the ones who are able to look past the sins of the past and say, this is about the future. And I don't need to go back and make you suffer for the stuff that you did during the conflict that just happened. And we know that Donald Trump is not one of those people. He spent even before the election, he was talking about jailing his political rival, which is straight out of the third world dictator playbook. And anybody who's followed him for any amount of time sees that he can't let it go when people criticize him. He just can't. Yeah. Well, so I, I you know, you, I think you made a great point. Lincoln, uh, charity towards all, malice towards none is a or was it malice? Charity for all, malice towards none, I believe. Is that the order, though, that he says it? Anyway, whatever. That, those, are the, those are the main words, charity and malice. You know, no, no malice, all charity. Lincoln, our boy. Uh, very important. And there are all sorts of, you know, I was going to say, you can bring up um, Nelson Mandela as a leader. Oh, yes, absolutely. Pulling his people towards that, saying no, you know, always standing against that natural human reaction to punish and take vengeance. Uh, and saying like, I suffered for all of us, you know, we can close the page, turn the page on this, open a new chapter in our, in our collective national history. Um, Gandhi trying the same thing every time that, you know, the country, uh, was dissolving into communal violence. Um, you know, communities would hear about massacres that were occurring in other parts of the, of India. And then there was this, you know, ink blot effect, if you want to use, uh, counterinsurgency terminology and Gandhi would, would respond by saying, you know, I will starve myself to death if you don't stop. 
you know, just, again, the leader willing to suffer to bring the attention of the whole community to say, like, we are one community and, and let's put aside our differences. Um, you know, MLK is obviously used as a symbol to this effect in the, in the context of the United States, but I don't want to get too much into that. That being said, you know, the point you're just making about Robert E. Lee versus Jefferson Davis in the context of reconstruct, of, you know, putting down the Southern rebellion and, um, going into the process of reconstruction. I mean, the sad fact is that if the South, so I've, I've read somewhere that basically the reason that Robert E. Lee did that is not because he just somehow rediscovered his patriotism for the United States that he, that he had betrayed. It's that he was consistently loyal to the Virginia planting class and that if um, they had gone into the hills and they had attempted to um, protract the insurgency and rebellion against the North, against the country, then the resulting invasion and would, would have annihilated the entire society. I mean, it would have even annihilated the planting economy and the families that engaged in it and uh, completely destroyed the antebellum, antebellum system. What we, in fact, saw was the antebellum system recapitulating, you know, capitulating and then reconstituting itself um, during, you know, after this half-hearted reconstruction, which effectively sold the, you know, sold the hopes of African-Americans um, down the river. If that's the word that comes to mind, it's... Uh, unfortunate phrasing, but I mean, perhaps all too apt. Um, and so I, you know, the problem is, and this is the point of our, our approach is that we don't shy away from those types of complexities. And most of the time, I mean, it, it is just true that if you go, if you increase the violence that is, you know, the input to whatever sort of dynamic equilibrium you're talking about, if you're saying like, okay, you know, we need more violence to create a better society. Like, that logic almost always just leads to a cycle of continuing violence that immiserates everyone involved. However, it just is the case that in America, in our history, calling off that cycle of violence and saying, we've drawn enough blood, you know, let's bind up our wounds. Let's move forward. Let's put this episode behind us. The people who suffered the most from that were the people who ha had always suffered the most and were continuing to suffer and were basically ignored uh, for another hundred years. And, um, you know, and that is part of our national sin as Americans. And it's something that, um, you know, I can't, I can't let pass. And even if... You know, it's, it's just one of these contradictions at the core of a truth that is otherwise valid, that you need to move forward with malice towards none and, and, and charity for all. Um, but, you know, it could have been the case that a more radical reconstruction, you know, helped along by Southerners who were truly um, unrepentant and and you know, and refusing to surrender, 
like if they had done that and if the reconstruction had been more um bloodthirsty and brutal then it might have actually been much better for our country mm. well of course it also could have been much much worse it, exactly right you know yeah. exactly. exactly like i mean as as bad as all of that has gone i mean there hasn't really been a realistic threat of another civil war like that since then whereas a lot of these other countries have had when when they get to be pretty vicious the civil war just keeps going on and on and it right. is very unfortunate as you say in a lot of these conflicts in both conflicts whenever you um that the person who gets sold out first is the person who needed the most help in the first place is so often yep. how it goes um yep. you see this when it comes to talks about feminism where um, um, where African-American feminists will be concerned that white feminists are going to sell them out again because they yeah. know that what keeps happening is the white feminists say, well, let's just do the thing that's in front of us, which just happens to be the thing that only affects white feminists. And, and then they ignore the issues that affect feminists that are of color. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, I mean, it's difficult to know when is it appropriate to settle scores, but I'm not, I can't really think of too many times in history that going for the harsher approach has been a demonstrable success like that. Unless you right. consider the third Punic war where there simply is no more <laughs> Carthage, um, which I don't think is what we want to be doing with any of this. Right. No, I, I, I was talking with my advisor actually about this, and this is a very inchoate thought, but you know, um, I want to read de Tocqueville again, mm. comparing America with Russia, because this is something that I don't think anyone has approached, I don't think anyone has approached this topic um, in a way that I would find acceptable, which is that, you know, de Tocqueville says, just in general, from what I can recall, that, you know, Russia and America are these two vast continental countries that will shape the future of the world. And I think that it's pretty, that's basically his point. It's only like a couple pages, you know, that I remember what you're talking about. Like the hundreds of pages that he wrote about this, but you know, I was just thinking about like, let's go back to that period of time. Both were vast frontier societies that functioned on slave labor with some, there's just this weird fusion of, slave labor and industry. And, you know, Russia was so vast, it actually, you know, it, it ended up being like a very significant industrial power. It just wasn't very industrial relative to its size. And, the, and you know, the, the overall productivity of, it, of its economy was still pretty low, even though its, it's you know, absolute out, output ended up being relatively high. Um, and the issue is that both of these countries it seems to me actually faced very similar issues uh, in terms of diversity and integration and uplift of these uh, immiserated, exploited, you know, slave populations, effectively the serfs and the actual African-American enslaved people. Um, And then how did they solve them? You know, and, and Russia solved, you know, quote unquote, solved the problem by basically breaking itself and, continually breaking itself just you know these the the stalinistic purges um liquidation of the productive classes you know the quote-unquote kulaks um you know in ways that have obviously not been good for that society but that also produced a certain amount of legitimacy in the society and and did actually produce a certain amount of 
of uplift and equality, which, um, you know, I am the last person who will defend, you know, the Stalinistic five-year plan approach. There is all sorts of evidence that it was just catastrophe in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, but, but it is true that there are people who, I mean, there is legitimacy, internal legitimacy. Uh, there always was, you know, there were proud Soviets. It's just true. Um, and, you know, when you look at America, you see the sort of bourgeois response, um, you know, the non-revolutionary response, the incremental, let's sell out, you know, let's like always be willing to sell out 10 to 20% of the people at the bottom so that the 80% can prosper. That's always been the approach. And it has generated this enormously successful, prosperous society up to now. And it probably will continue to if we continue to have that kind of an approach. Even as now, for example, with healthcare, we say, no, selling out the 20% at the bottom is no longer acceptable. We have to extend this right to them as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, th- I, I, I want to try to make that comparison with, with Russia and see if it, if it works. You know, yeah. from that perspective, we've once, gone very far. Once again, for those of you just <laughs> picking up, this is this is how uh, Russian serfs are related to Donald Trump's vindictiveness and score settling. <laughs> uh, if you couldn't, fo- if you could follow that train of thought, I suggest you take the Mensa test. Stalin, uh, okay, Stalin, very vindictive. Very Stalin was very vindictive. Settling. That's true. There are no <laughs> tangents. Oh man! All right, let's move on to our next point. Um, this is one of those red flags that can be fixed. Now, we sometimes say, oh, this this candidate, he doesn't know anything about this or that issue. But that's not always a fully damning uh, problem. This issue is lack of intellectual curiosity on key issues. If you don't know something to start with, but you're willing to learn, that's not as big of a problem. Uh, A key example of someone who did this here was Abraham Lincoln at the start of the Civil War, where very famously... He went to the library and started checking out books on war. He said, I, I know that I don't know a lot about this, and I'm going to accept that and get myself up to speed. Uh, so that's how, if you don't know something, it's not necessarily a problem. The real problem is not wanting to learn. And in the early years of the George W. Bush administration, this was a little bit of a problem where we had things where they were talking about invading Iraq, and it turns out they don't know the difference between Shunis and Shia. And that's not great. Uh, And at the time, they thought that people who brought up things like that were just quibbling. This wasn't something we really needed to look into. By the end, uh, George W. Bush actually ended up seeming fairly intellectually curious, uh, at least insofar as a professor whose class uh, we both took uh, told us about meeting him and Bush being very interested in hearing more about Otto von Bismarck's um, grand strategy, which was a, a delightful tidbit I was happy to hear because I, I do think George W. Bush was one of those people who was able to make that second term change because he did want to understand more. He had a little bit of arrogance at the beginning about what he understood, but then he realized he didn't understand it and he made adjustments eventually. Trump's people are showing the same lack of intellectual curiosity that delayed Bush's ability to um, learn. There is a very famous uh, moment that Jared Kushner had recently where he was talking, I believe this was about the Middle East, uh, where he said, we've read enough books. We don't need to learn anymore about right, that. Right. And if you don't learn, you can't, well, learn. 
And if you don't learn, you're probably not improving and you'll keep making a lot of the same mistakes. That's why I think this is a key leadership red flag because you can't expect everybody to know everything. If, for example, uh, you know, Bush was sometimes given pop quizzes by reporters on the trail during the 2000 election to show, haha, see how this guy doesn't know who the leader of, of you know, Slovenia is. I believe he actually confused Slovenia and Slovakia on something, and that was actually a week's worth of news coverage, which, I mean, come on. If you ask a guy a question off the top of his, I don't know the context. If it had something to do with, with NATO, maybe it was relevant. But, you know, off the top of your head, somebody making that mistake, if somebody said Czechoslovakia, for, for example, I still do that, and I was five or so when Czech, it became the Czech Republic um, and Slovakia. So anyway... The the point is, making a mistake like that is reasonable. Not wanting to learn and then fix it is the real problem. Right. And again, I think uh, part of this issue is the effect that that has on the staff, as well as the effect that it has on the broader population. Um, because if you combine lack of intellectual curiosity with a kind of arrogance and vindictiveness um, and focus on always seeming bigger than everyone around you, then, you know, how are the staff going to correct your ignorance? You know, if, if you're, if you're constantly dressing people down, like Trump allegedly did Jeff Sessions, you know, just humiliating people in front of other members of the staff, just to reassert your authority. You know, how are you ever going to be corrected? Um, you know, I don't want to lionize the staff too much because, one, for example, uh, you know, one of the great, there were, you know, there were a handful of these moments that George W. Bush, you know, had sort of backed himself into a corner, you know, it led, made a series of mistakes or, or if not exactly making mistakes, at least had not done things that he should have done that ended up sort of trending into chaos and disaster. And one of those was uh, obviously with the Iraq war. Um, but then when it came to the surge, you know, all the staff were effectively staff very loosely construed in this sense, um, you know, were advising various courses and he care, you know, allegedly the way the story goes, you know, he carefully listened to, all these proposals. And then he said, you know, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to go with the surge. Um, and he took basically, you know, he didn't, he effectively didn't listen to the staff. He took a proposal, uh, but you know, from sort of far left field, he took it and then implemented it. So it's not as though you need to listen to staff, but he wasn't creating an atmosphere in which people were afraid to tell him what they actually thought because, he was going to snap at them. And, you know, again, with the Jeff Sessions, uh, the story that came out, you know, subject, subject this man who spent, I mean, say whatever you were going to say about Jeff Sessions. He spent his entire life, you know, serving the country. Um, if you think he's a racist, if you think, you know, that, um, everything he's done has been bad, that's totally fair. But there are just ways in which you can and can't talk to people. And for the president to, you know, humiliate this guy in front of other people is just unacceptable. Again, unacceptable 
not only because of the sort of moral claim I, I was just making, but because of the effect it has on the staff where they say no one is safe. You know, no one, no matter how much they've given to this country, is going to get respectful treatment from this man. And so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. You know, that's that's an obvious response. And then it also um, forces his core supporters to say, you know, whatever we're hearing, you know, whatever kind of whatever the eggheads are saying, like, I'm not going to listen to that. I can't listen to that because um, my support for this man forces me to make rationalizations. I mean, whenever you look in fiction at some particularly degraded, corrupt, horrible empire with a terrible ruler, it's always one of the characteristics that the ruler will just randomly kill some of his people because they upset him in some way. Um, I mean, that's just always the thing that you don't, it's not a functional system if you treat your people where they have to walk on eggshells. They have to be free to give you candid advice. And you know, as the saying goes, if you're in Washington and you want a friend, get a dog. If you want a dog, get Chris Christie. So anyway, um, now this is similar to uh, another point, which is it's bad when the leader has a lack of engagement on the key issues. In this case, you can talk about how when it came to health care, Trump had – does anybody listening to this think Trump understood what was in the Republican <laughs> plan at all, just at all, that he knew what was even going on in it? He would make claims about, oh, this will improve everybody's health care. This will be this. This will be great. I don't think he knew anything about it. And he would make – like right now with tax reform, he's claiming that they won't decrease taxes on the top 1%, which is such a laughably absurd disconnect from reality. I think he just doesn't know. Sometimes when he says these things – I mean he is he is quite the the compulsive liar. But with some of these things, I think he really doesn't know what he's pushing. And this manifested itself in two different ways that he was not engaged. One is he's not engaged enough to know what's in the bill. And the other is he's not engaged enough to make sure it passes. Yeah. There was some tweet that I saw after uh, the Senate uh, reconciliation attempt failed for the skinny repeal where somebody, I can't remember who this was, but somebody tweeted uh, somehow Trump's closing argument that his attorney general is terrible did not get health care through. Right. All he really did to support the bill was to make obnoxious remarks to people on Twitter, which don't help. Threatening right. Dean Heller didn't help. Uh, trying to threaten Lisa Murkowski by claiming they're going to take um, funds away from Alaska did not help. That was very counterproductive. And I think there might even be an investigation going on now about whether that was appropriate behavior from the Interior Department. So, oh, really? yeah, let's watch these spa these, this space for more about that. Uh, oh, so that's an example of where, um, look, if you're not engaged on the issue itself and the substance of what's going on, what are you doing? Are you just going to the players involved and just giving them encouragement? You're just saying, yeah, keep going. In fact, I believe Trump even did that at one point. He he was it the healthcare bill where he simply put out a tweet that said, you're so close, guys, keep going with something along those lines. That's yeah, not I think productive. That doesn't that's not helpful. That doesn't getting people with different viewpoints to agree on something requires a lot more than just telling them to agree. Right. Well, it's, you know, you got to have someone who is keeping an eye on the whole process and is able to say, okay, look, everybody, this is the main thing we're going after. This is what we're all interested in. 
And then on the margins, okay, you guys get this, you guys get this, you guys are going to have to suffer X, you guys are going to have to suffer Y, you know, you don't want it, but remember, here's the big picture, we're all going to get whatever main delivery of this legislation is. Um, you know, and obviously Trump couldn't keep all those things together, you know, he couldn't keep track of what all those things were, um, or at least he doesn't seem... I mean, there is there is zero indication from any source that he has that capacity um, to follow those t- t- those kinds of detail. Um, although, you know, with something like the healthcare bill, it's like it was just a it was such a disaster from the beginning, and so many. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not convinced that, I mean, there's this whole thing of like, it only failed by one vote. Um, I think the general lack of responsibility that led, that characterized the whole 2016 cycle on base, almost all sides, especially including the media, um, and just the people of this country, uh, was going to follow through or was going to sort of continue through that vote where the Republicans were willing the Republican caucus was willing to pass it just to see what would happen. Um, it's like, well, okay, we're just going to keep, you know, the hot potatoes with us now and we're going to go together as a team. That being said, there were, yeah, I believe the reporting that there were, you know, up to like eight, at least, you know, Republican senators who were probably very glad that McCain uh, took the heat for all of them to shut that down. Um at the end, you know, uh, Dean Heller included. Um, but anyway, yes, clearly, you know, the, you need a leader, um, who has authority and a spotlight and the bully pulpit to, um, go out to the people and say, this is what, this is why this process is important. But then all, you know, and, and speak in very general terms, which is all that Trump did, but then crucially to turn around and, you know, and do the same thing, uh, but in very precise terms to individual senators who have their own uh, considerations in their own states. And obviously Trump was uh, unwilling to, unable or unwilling to do that. You seem to believe all you had to do was try to arm twist people by being mean to them. Yeah. It's, It's almost, if you were, one of the things that has always amazed me is that I've read a few things about management. I didn't go to business school. But uh, I often do like reading summaries of new management studies when they come out. And I read – I borrowed some of my brother's um, business – he, he he did go to business school. And I read, I looked – I borrowed and read some of his business books because I was just curious to know some stuff about management. And it was amazing how much space had to be taken up in every book and in every study I've ever read about simply to tell managers not to berate their employees in front of everyone. <laughs> It's 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 amazing because when you really stop and think about it from the employee's perspective, that's one of the worst things you can do for morale. It makes you resent the boss, all of these things. And yet, and yet, this is something that's – and I'm sure we've all had bosses out there who do this. I actually don't know that I have. But many of us will have had bosses who do this where they, they think that to be a manager is to upbraid people when they make a mistake – to sort of yell at and and correct them when all the management studies sh- say that you should praise in public and shame in private. 
right, and, right or right. criticize in private. Maybe you don't even ever need to shame them. Trump is the opposite of that. He's just constantly doing one of the things that he would hear is wrong in the first page of any management book. Right. And yet somehow this man has an MBA from one of the top business schools in the country. From university. No, he well, he, well, I mean, he went to the Wharton school, which is right. like one of the top business schools, but um, I mean, it's just, it's kind of amazing that this is something that in this day and age with this much knowledge about how management works, we still have people who need to be told these things. And it's right. all the more amazing when that person somehow ends up as president. Right. Well, right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a broader cultural re resonance, I think, that he, um, you know, the harsh, demanding taskmaster um, who, you know, the sort of full speed ahead, uh, irate, you know, yeah, I mean, harsh, demanding taskmaster. I think yeah. a fair characterization. I don't really need to really... No, I don't think you do. Harm. That it feels good, just like harsh justice feels good. It's what people right, but feel it, but should it, work, and it feels appropriate to right. a significant portion of our society. You know, they look at that, and they—I mean, you know—they look at that, and they say, like, that's what it takes to raise people. You know, that's what it takes to get the best out of people. Like, that's what they think, and whether it's true or not. I mean, evidently, right? Like, I mean, there there is this mass of people that he is still appealing to. Um, and there are all sorts of ways to approach that mass and explain what makes them, you know, how they are, why they cohere, you know, what, what characterizes them as a group and whether, you know, you call them deplorables or white supremacists or the white working class or... Um, or whatever else, you know, whatever label you to choose. be clear, we are not suggesting all of those completely overlap. No, I precisely by yeah. listing them. I am saying that, you know, these terms are deficient, you know, that they don't work, you know, to describe, uh, this very large portion of people. Um, but you know, it, it does seem self-evident to me that a lot of them do see something like this and say, you know, that's what I guess that's what it takes to be a businessman, you know, to to run a big company. To That goes to back to the Joe Arpaio stuff from last time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, not just Joe Arpaio, but like evidently. OK, you say this is in the, all the manuals. But like from what I understand, Steve Jobs was a pretty nasty piece of work uh, as a boss. I don't I don't know for a fact that that's true, but I, I mean, I've I've read um some anecdotes that he was not a charmer. Right. Um, oh, no, he's, he's supposed to have been very difficult to deal with. Although I don't know if it's quite the same issue as in some of those, I think it had more to do with a personally abrasive style with some of the people, not quite as much yeah. what we were talking about with that, but, but then again, I don't know. I haven't read enough about Steve Jobs. Yeah. But no, I mean, in, in general though, uh, you know, um, but here's the thing, whether or not here's, here's a, I mean, you were trying to make the argument, that that type of style is inappropriate in business and that studies show that it's not good in business. You are taking, you are trying to prove the harder case. You know, you're, you're making a hard argument to prove and it may or may not be, you know, a good argument. However, again, government is not business. It is not. Government and democracy are not business. Although I would argue that office management techniques will probably carry over from one office to the next because I've worked in perhaps, private sector. Perhaps. Although, sector. although, you know, government 
in a pluralistic, massive federal democracy has to include, you know, at least being aware of these sort of other voices and, you know, outside effects. And, um, and that's, again, going back to this whole thing that I was talking about before that in response to what you were saying about vindictiveness and lack of intellectual curiosity, you know, if you, um, if you create that kind of climate, uh, where you say that, you know, from the beginning that you're right and you're the greatest and you're, you know, you want effective, hard work from all of your underlings and you don't want to be questioned and you will not accept being questioned or corrected, then that's just a terrible approach, you know, for managing a, um, you know, democracy. And there are examples of this, uh, you know, from the late Ottoman empire where, uh, efforts at reform were stymied by leaders who, um, were wedded to an idea of a unitary power that, um, I mean, this is a complicated subject that obviously require, would require a lot of explaining to get. I to think all of our listeners are familiar with the end of the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> but in any case, you know, you had people like even even people who were getting a lot of information, you know, hearing all these voices, hearing about what was going on in this very disparate empire who said, um, you know, I am the only authority. I cannot share power. I cannot be questioned. And that led to, or it contributed to, it was part of the disaster, uh, of, and collapse of that empire. Hmm. Whereas, whereas in America, we've done very well at, um, at growing and changing and thriving in this living sort of organic way throughout our history. Yeah. Yeah. And America, I mean, by its, its entire structure is about divisions of power. Right. Right. And that, you know, for the most part, works out pretty well on some things. That's an entire separate discussion one could have. Um, reminding all of you that if you're just joining us, that this discussion of power sharing in the late Ottoman Empire is how we're talking about lack of engagement on key issues by Donald Trump. I told you I was going to bring up the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> oh, I, I, would, I would have been sad if you hadn't. Okay. All right. Um, so not all of these things we have to discuss too much, um, but it's interesting to note uh, one of the next items that I'd written down was impulsivity, recklessness, and a tendency towards anger. Uh, these are things you see whenever you hear Donald Trump make a speech. He seems to go through one of those days where, oh, he spoke before Congress and he read off a teleprompter and he was sane and normal. And then the next day he goes and has to rail about something completely bizarre that flabbergasts the media. We saw this weird Arizona rally recently where he was just seemed pretty unhinged. Then the next day he gives an almost normal speech uh, in front of some military men. And then the next day he was back to giving a crazy speech. And uh, one we've mentioned before that democracy was a bad word to the Greeks, that politeia was the good form and democracy was the corrupted form. This was, I believe, Aristotle who had a view of um, the good forms and corrupted forms of various kinds of government, that monarchy is good, tyranny is the corrupted form, uh, that aristocracy is is a good rule by the few, and oligarchy is the corrupt form of that. Politeia is the good form of uh, 
democracy. It's hard not to use the word democracy there. Well, of, of collective rule by all citizens. Right. And then democracy is, a, is the corrupted form. But when you talk about impulsivity, impulsivity is the corrupted form where being bold is considered the good form. And people right. criticized Obama quite a lot because he was too slow to act. He wasn't bold enough on a lot of issues. There aren't too many points where you can point, look at Obama's presidency and say, wow, he was, re he was just way too bold on that one. Um, and, but you can dip over into being impulsive and reckless. And I would have to say suddenly tweeting at eight in the morning on a weekend that the previous president wiretapped you on the basis of no evidence is past that line into impulsivity and recklessness. Right. I don't think there's much uh, evidence on the other side. We don't need to. Yeah, I don't think we need <laughs> really to belabor that, that point. It's, it's one of those things you have to remember, but you don't really have to look at too much. Along yeah. with my next point, which is obsessiveness. This kind of goes in with vindictiveness, but it can go beyond that to when you can't let go of an issue. This happened a little bit during the healthcare fight where the Republicans in Congress basically look, they're like, we, we've lost. We can't do this. We don't have a plan. It's not good enough. And Trump kept he couldn't let it go. He needed the win. He had yeah. to keep talking about it. And that only made things more complicated for the people who were trying to work on it. Right. And an inability to move past something, it's almost our national psyche sort of has this inherent obsessiveness with political scandals that we have to try to overcome and get past some of these things. Trump is not only obsessive himself, but he's making the rest of us obsessive. <laughs> he keeps right. adding all of these things that we find so absurd, the way the Russia scandal works, his treatment of Jeff Sessions, so many of these things. It's it's not good for any of us. Uh, and I'm not right. really aware of a time that a leader being having a hard time letting go of something has really turned out to be good. <laughs> Although, well, well again, say, it's well, like that's you... the corrupted form. The good form was being, you know, uh, relentless. Yeah. Great word. Great word. Um yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. And um, yeah, you definitely want you want relentlessness in pursuit of goals that are good. You know, you, you don't want obsessiveness in pursuit of um, goals or even more to the point. I mean, the thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, I, I glanced at Trump's Twitter feed uh, today and he... <laughs> The top of the feed at the moment that I looked was that he had retweeted this GIF that was like, it was called Trump's impeccable golf swing. And it was like him hitting the golf ball. And then it cut to this image that it was like Hillary Clinton stumbling as she walked into a plane. And they had like put this image of like a flaming golf ball hitting her in the back at the moment that she stumbled. And then you know, flying off the screen. So it was like Trump had hit a golf ball into Hillary Clinton's back to make her stumble at that moment. And he had re retweeted that. And it's like, so that image of Hillary Clinton was probably not even from the campaign. It was probably when she was secretary of state. And it's like, why are we thinking about this? Why is any, why are any of us, this isn't just a broader conversation about Hillary Clinton's role um, in our society, which we don't really need to get into, but it's like this obsessiveness about lock her up the emails, which is coming from Trump and it is circulating through the Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, bizarro world of right-wing media. Um, 
not even to mention like Breitbart and Infowars, Infowars. Um, and it's like, exactly as you say, it comes from the top and it's not clear where the line is between actual personal obsessiveness and a strategy to distract and rile people up. And it's, it's clearly some of the latter, um, but it also appears to be a little bit of the former. Right. He just can't, he can't, he's one of the, he can't let go that he won. And so much so that he even has to exaggerate it and, and pretend that he actually won the popular vote too. And then his crowd size was huge. And it's a lot of these things, which it's not, it would be one thing if he'd sort of thrown that out as a lie once, but he's sticking to them. Yeah. He continues to insist that insist that these things are true. You know, one so one thing that is coming to mind, and it's I think it it applies to everything that we've discussed, as well as some of the points that you um, you know that you had written down that we haven't yet gotten to, which is that I mean the the framers saw this coming. Yes, you know they anticipated this because indeed um, all of those corrupted forms of government that were part of the classic Greek political philosophy. They they knew that classic Greek political philosophy, and they were anticipating the corruption of the system that they were putting into place. And they said, well, we can hybridize the system to include all of these elements. Um, you know, you sort of the aristocracy is the judiciary, the, you know, the politeia is the legislative, and the monarchy is the executive. Uh, you put them all together, and you can sort of inoculate each segment from the flaws of the other of the other segments um and it's worked relatively well for us and in in fact well whatever this yeah it's worked so well that our system hasn't changed very much in you know 240 years which is actually kind of a bad thing right um i mean there was that big civil war where it broke down but the system didn't need to change that much afterwards exactly yeah Yeah, like yeah, the I mean, changes the 13, that were made 13, were those through related 15th to amendments were pretty pretty yeah. important, but um, you know, but arguably should not have even had to have been amendments in the first place, mm-hmm. right? We should have. I mean, those principles didn't shouldn't have needed amendments to spell them out, you know. But anyway, well, uh, I mean, some things. With this, this is a different. Let's, let's yeah. just uh, yeah, let's just put this out. <laughs> this is, the point that law school make, flashbacks. The point here that I'm trying to make though is that the framers incorporated certain rights. We'll just have to pass past that. Right. The 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 framers um as they as they framed this system. Uh, understood and anticipated that people like Trump would exist. And I actually think that they expected more Trumps. Mm. And part of the problem is that there aren't more Trumps. That you don't have um, a, you know, House Speaker or Senate Majority Leader who are jealous of their power and are eager to put the president in his place and are vindictive and score settling. And, um, because the whole point was that these vices, you know, you don't, you don't assume an, uh, you know, a nation of angels who will all do their jobs perfectly. You assume a nation of human beings who are flawed. You understand those flaws, those vices, and you set those vices against one another so that they balance out in this system that's, that preserves itself. And, and uh, you know, the fact it's like part of this whole thing about Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell having no spine. Um, part of this whole narrative is that, you know, it's no spine relative to Donald Trump who keeps humiliating them. And if they had a sense of, getting of wanting to get him back 
you know, that they might um, do things to, to curtail his power that would actually be beneficial for the country. Um, you know, reining in the power of the executive in all sorts of ways. I mean, there's a lot that we could do in that direction that would be very good for the country. Hmm. Um, and of course, it would need to be accompanied by uh, a simultaneous uh, reworking. Of, well, not reworking in a institutional sense, but as people, we just have to the Congress. Like the reason the executive expands so much is because Congress doesn't really do its job on a lot of things. And it likes to punt issues where they're politically insulated. Congress would have if Congress would need to grow a spine both to do things that it's currently reluctant to do and wants to pass the buck to the executive and the executive. And then they would also have to curtail the executive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah, if we, I mean, in order to go into specifics to elucidate that point, it would sort of take us even further afield, but there's, no, there's there no tangents. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> there are no tangents, but there's, there are there's certainly co-tangents. Their paths not taken. Yeah. Um, so my point is just that, um, again, if we're talking about the second and third order effects of these things we're calling vices, you know, if a vice is matched by someone else's vice in a way that neutralizes the threat of either vice for the broader society, you know, do you even call them vices? If you account for that in the system and that's the way it actually functions, then um, you know, then the system, then what does it even mean to call them vices? I mean, they are vices, but they are accounted for and they are the tensions of a dynamic system that is keeping its equilibrium. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of the problem is that you, is that we have this, we've just gotten to this point where, um, you know, the legislator, the legislative is, um, the legislative branch is prone in a way that I think the founders didn't anticipate. Yeah. And there's not much, there's not much, uh, I mean, that's just one of the ways in which, as I said, like it's a, the, you know, the, the constitution is a victim of its own success that it's worked for so long, um, that there's not much of an escape valve for that, for what we're seeing. Right. And I mean, cause part of that problem is in an analogy to what has been going on with the executive branch, there are ways we're supposed to deal with certain issues. We can amend parts of the Constitution that haven't been functioning to say certain things, but we tend not to do that because it's just so much easier to let the courts rule on something and go along with that. Or it's just easier to pass a law that maybe isn't quite what we should be doing, or maybe it's an abrogation of certain amounts of power, but we just kind of let them do it. There is an inherent extent to which being lazy, I think, could eventually lead to some big problems as a system. Yeah, has well, and, and you know, so I, I lack the words to say this well, because partly because I don't think there is a particularly good way of saying this. But you know, Trump's sense of being unconstrained by the moral expectations of anyone in the country. Um when it comes to the DACA issue could actually be a, could result in a positive relative to what you just described, right? Because the legal status of residents in this country should not depend on the whim of the executive, but that should be legislated. Yes, exactly. The failure of the legislature to deal with this issue 
is a huge problem. And that's the problem. You know, the, and then Obama did something that was, you know, important to do, but was the sort of second wrong that didn't really quite make right. And the problem now is that, uh, you know, it's not as though Trump is actually doing this because he cares and wants to give these people legal status. It's just his, he's seeking a win, right? He, yeah. he wants And that's the obsessiveness. Win. And it's the obsessiveness. You, it's about exactly. getting to the win and not about the cost you pay to get to the win. Right. And then now the problem again is the broad, the bigger picture and the, you know, the effect of his impulsiveness and demand for a win um, and his lack of constraint where he says, you know, okay, uh, I'm going to give this red meat to my base and I'm going to end DACA. And it's, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap myself in this sort of constitutional flag where I say I'm doing the right thing and making, get, you know, provoking a legislative t solution to this issue that the executive order should not be the final, you know, authority for. Um, and so now it's, you know, the ball's in their court. And of course, if, if they don't do anything, then that's not my problem. Right. So it's like, it's all, it's all, it's all bad. It's all bad faith. And it's hard to see this actually resulting in a positive outcome but the the problem is that um that the legislature should solve it and so now we have trump's impulsivity and he's he's pushing this to the legislature and then what if they don't yeah solve it right like what if they don't create a legislative solution that what actually, if the six-month deadline passes what if the six-month deadline passes then we're in chaos again because we'll have an intolerable outcome of actually deporting all these people, um, or we will have more lawlessness where the government doesn't enforce the laws. So, you know, it's just awful. It's just terrible. And it's, it's terrible both because of the effect of the individual's actions and character but more to the point because of the choices that those vices then force on everyone else. Yes. And uh, one of the other points that we had brought up, which again, dovetailed so well with this is a sense of being above the rules and above the law, which he, you know, Trump, I think as somebody who really doesn't understand that much about how government works, he certainly understood very little before taking office. He seemed to genuinely believe that there were things he could just do, that he could just ban Muslims from coming into the country, that he could just have people put through a health care bill, something like that. When we have a system that's meant to slow a lot of that down, there's a procedure you have to follow. When he's, oh, this so-called judge who is blocking my plan. I right. mean, that's that's dangerous because... Uh, as we've said before, the Constitution, to a certain extent, is held up very well. And when you just start to break it, when you just start to say, well, I don't I just want to ignore the system that's here, then you're entirely reliant on, as you said, it's either got to be people's respect for the system or that there are other people who care enough about their own power that they're going to push back. Right. And in exactly. that case, we did have enough people who pushed back on the in the case of the Muslim ban. Like the, yeah. the judiciary did its job and uh, there, there wasn't enough support from Republicans to, I don't know, pass something that would let him do that. Uh, so, you know, that that's an example of where um, those those counteracting ambitions actually helped.
Yeah, well, and this is what this is a bizarre schizophrenic moment that we're all in. Where, um, well, not all of us. I, I think we're all living through it, but some people don't see it that way because they only see the doom and the sort of they, they only see the negative side of things, um, as opposed to recognizing the way in which the system is working in response. I, I, I think more and more people are. Now, more and more people who are critics of the administration are, are acknowledging the way in which, um, you know, people are flooding to the streets to protest certain unacceptable things. Um, the courts are responding in, in certain ways, uh, as you described. And then even the legislature is, you know, even the you know unified Republican government is not going along with um, some of the worst um policies that have bubbled up out of certain corners of the uh of the political firmament so you know it's not like those are good things because they all sort of right. it's like it's like why did they even happen it's like the it's like the valor that people exhibit in war it's like you know we don't need that <laughs> we don't need this to show us how good we are right um i mean it's or it's it's a similar analogy might be you put in earth, you design a building to be relatively earthquake proof, and then there's an earthquake, and you're really glad that it held up to the earthquake, but you know there was a lot of other damage caused by the earthquake, so you're not right. happy there was an earthquake, even though you are happy that your system yeah. held. Well, and actually, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I also I wanted to revisit the DACA thing because part of this is part of the thing I wanted to say is that um, even if we all agree that there needed to be a transition to a legislated uh, final status for people under for the dreamers. The way in which this is happening, even if it does result in that final status, and even if, you know, their lives are not disrupted in any legal way, you know, the, 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 the Congress, you know, passes something within the six month deadline and it gets signed and it's all fine and nobody's deported. Even if that all happens, the dread and anxiety generated by this whole process, I mean, it's like the earthquake. It's like when you're in that house that you know is a good house and, you know, you know should hold up. Like that fear and dread that comes from the earthquake is terrible, you know, and, that, and that's what they're dealing with now. And it's awful, even if, you know, from a legislative, uh, from a constitutional standpoint, um, the final, even if the final outcome is arguably better. Right. Than... I mean, you could say that your house holds up, but some items fell off the shelves and broke. Because if, if you're no, one I, of those... I'm not even talking about concrete issues. I'm talking about the psychological issue. I mean, it is right. Just well, a but I mean, in addition to that, that I'm referring to, to the psychological issues as the stuff that can get broken in the sense that it's harm that is inflicted. Oh, but... you're the guy who thought a cat's claws were tools. You're you're just spinning nonsense out of all out right, of all right, craziness. Well, then... We can move on. Yeah. Um, the next issue was going to be, speaking of things Dave seems to be feeling today, paranoia. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you can get paranoia to the Nixonian levels where when you – it's strange that in the case of Nixon, he can seem so normal with a lot of his official acts. And then you listen to those recordings, and he just seems kind of crazy. Um, and Donald Trump is like Nixon, except he's crazy in public, too. Um, I mean, he will put out these things. Oh, there are all these these fake votes cast. All the polls are fake. 
All the news is fake. Everything's fake. Everything is a giant conspiracy. I mean, this is not this is not healthy for a leader. It's not healthy for a society to have a leader who says this publicly because mm-hmm. a lot of people assume that if the president's saying it, there's some truth behind it. Yeah. You know, this it's a really interesting point to bring up Nixon and to talk about the public and private faces because yeah, these vices. Yeah, as you say, I mean, the Nixon's vices were not altogether hidden, but they like people were kind of aware at at certain levels, at least. But as you say, he put on a pretty good show, you know, in public. And but then, and also as president, in terms of what he did, um, he did a lot of very effective governing. The EPA and OSHA and opening up China and all of these things. Exactly. That pinko communist Nixon. Exactly. Home rule in D.C. There you go. Exactly. And so, you know, it's yet another indication of of, um, the um, skepticism and care we have to bring to this discussion of how vices, you know, personal vices affect leaders. Um, Because obviously his personal vices did lead to this like catastrophe but along the way you know resulted in a lot of effective governance which means the key question with nixon is is nixon an example of the system working or not working you could make a very good case that nixon is an example of the system working because you had this brilliant but volatile and flawed individual the kind of person who probably shouldn't be given power we gave him power he accomplished a lot of good things and then when that became too much, we got rid of him. He's the only right. president that we've actually gotten rid of when when it became too much, other than, you know, yeah. at, a, at a normal electoral point. And right. that's that means so that's an interesting thing to think about. Is that a system that we're okay with? If if Trump had enough redeeming characteristics that he accomplished some brilliant goal nobody else could do in the first six months of his term, and then we immediately impeached him, would that be the system working? <laughs> yeah, well that's an interesting question but and this thing about the impeachment power is that it you know it was there is put there to be used and um you know and what i was saying before about these volatile personalities intending to or you know about the founder's intent that these val these volatile personalities balance each other the major way that they were you know, that they were anticipating that balancing would occur was obviously uh, impeachment. I mean, when I say major, like the most, the most significant, you know, probably the most common would just be, yeah, the, the legislature's use of the, um, the power of the purse. But, you know, the most significant is, in terms of protecting constitutional privileges is, is, is impeachment. And um, obviously any considerations, the way that people are talking about that now, there's no, there's no like constitutional or sort of honor type of um, uh, motivation for impeaching Trump that anyone is really discussing. It's a it's a partisan principle, which is again outside of what the um, the founders were really anticipating. Well, it's interesting how the the founders anticipated people pursuing their own interests, but they were very big about going up against partisanship they didn't want factions but they wanted individuals to behave in a manner similar to factions yeah, in the sense of going like, after their own interests i mean yeah. it's it's kind of 
it's hard to reconcile all of the things that they said because there were many of them and they all said different things. And even when it's one person right. saying something consistently, not everybody is perfect. I mean, I know I am, but everybody else isn't. And so I don't know how they could they wouldn't create something entirely uh, consistent. Yeah. But it's worth pointing out that you mentioned impeachment as the major defense, and it's fascinating to consider then that it has never been fully used. Right. You know, it's the weapon you don't have to fire. You yeah. aim it, but you're not necessarily firing it. Right. Um, and there's been a lot of talk. I don't know if you've read. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the constitutionality of various impeachment uh, approaches this year for reasons I can't possibly fathom. Uh, and <laughs> There was a discussion that back when they were um, going over, make, writing the Constitution and writing the impeachment clauses, they there was a debate at one point about adding in maladministration as a reason to impeach. Hmm. And they ended up not putting it in because they were concerned that it was a little too broad and could result in just impeaching everybody whenever you're unhappy about anything. But hmm. it's intriguing because um, part of this discussion is that the impeachment power is meant to be forward-looking more so than backward-looking in terms of its function. It's not there to say, oh, well, you made a mistake, and even though you'll never make that mistake again, we have to get rid of you because we just have to. It's you've become a danger, and you need to be removed from office. Interesting. Uh, and so while maladministration probably would be you know, a little too frivolous a cause to be able to impeach just about anybody— if you see somebody who is, I mean, what do you do in a situation like the present one where people believe that Trump is, let's say it got a little worse than it is now, where he's abusing power in a way that you can't really, you can't really explain, or he's doing things that are just disastrous. You think he's very likely to lead us to a war, but you don't really have a specific, you need to get him out, but you don't really know, you don't really have a good function for removing him. I mean, the impeachment power has to do something that's forward-looking when disaster is looming. Right. Yeah. Well, and... and there's also the 25th Amendment, which is its own thing. Man, yeah. all these things we've never had to discuss before that all of a sudden come... <laughs> that's another sign. That's another red flag. You've got a leader you probably shouldn't have, is if we have to dig up a bunch of these arguments. Yeah, although that is... I mean, that's begging the question. You know, I mean, if you... It's like if we're trying to decide whether the leader is bad and we're, we have these discussions and then you say, well, because we're having these discussions, the leader is therefore bad. Like you're not actually demonstrating. Right, right. What well, I will say that what we have demonstrated just now, which is very rare, is the appropriate use of the phrase begging the question, <laughs> which most people incorrectly believe has something to do with raising, um, raising a question. You would, but the actual definition of it has very little to do with the words begging the or question. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, we're running a little low on time, but there's not too much more that we'll take up. I put the ones that would take the longest to discuss first, which is, yeah. you know, a good way to look at it. Um, so we dealt with paranoia. Um, we've talked about his absurdly exaggerated sense of his own abilities, which we talked about that during the lack of intellectual curiosity and lack of engagement. That's a problem. That's something that we see on a lot of particularly deluded Roman emperors, which generally doesn't <laughs> tend to go very well. Uh, but there's not a lot we really need to add to that. Next, I want to talk about susceptibility to flattery. Um, one of the origins of the whole Putin-Trump bromance is because of a, a difficult translation of some Russian 
where Putin said that Trump was colorful or something to that effect. But the translation came out as brilliant in the way of brilliant, something shining. And Trump took this to mean that Putin thought he was a really intelligent person. And that was where the, there was sort of the genesis of a lot of these things. If he says nice things about me, I'm going to say nice things about him. It's yeah. very bizarre. Leaders who are susceptible to flattery, that's just a dangerous characteristic because it means that your policy could be determined by whoever is most willing to abase themselves in front of the leader and not based on rational argument. Yeah, I'm not sure that I am going to go along with the flattery thing. Cause I yeah, think, right, that's fine. I think that um, I think it's pretty clear that Trump is vindictive and uh, that he has a very powerful ego and you know operates on humiliation and all these very negative traits that come from him seeing himself as the bull in the china shop the unstoppable force you know all these all this all this type of stuff um but the question of whether he's really susceptible to flattery in this way like he clearly responds to it but i'm not sure whether has any kind of lasting effect because i mean we were talking about we were talking about this in other contexts he's also very he's totally unreliable and he's mm. constantly changing what he's saying and so you know you look at the stuff that he says about um xi jinping or uh you know kim jong-un that like he att he's attempting to flatter them and then he's not you know so he's tweeting right. like uh you know we're going to do great things together, America and China. We're going to solve all of our problems. They're helping us very much on North Korea. Oh, they're not helping at all. You know, they're, they're, they've got no effect on this whatsoever. America is going to have to solve this problem ourselves. You know, like just going back and forth um, in a way that is problematic for a different reason. You know, it's a problematic because the, the extent to which the global order relies on the, you know, ability to predict and plan and align all these very complicated competing interests. And then everyone looking at the U S as the first mover in that game to signal what our intentions are when there is zero certainty on, on what our intentions are because of this like cloud of misinformation coming out of the white house. That's a problem. Um, but you know, I think the presence of that problem suggests that this other problem might not be so much of an issue. I mean, there's, you know, there's the, there's the problem of him being like susceptible to bribery issues, you know, that's like his personal focus on making money and enriching himself, um, means that, you know, this whole issue of like going to Mar-a-Lago when he's there and having to buy a room you know, going to the uh, new hotel that he opened in D.C. in order to, you know, quote unquote, flatter him. Right. So that there was a report where they, um, you know, diplomats were quoted as saying that they were doing that to, like, show him respect, things like that. But like, OK, where do you how do you interpret how do you code this? <laughs> like, is it is it actually flattery or is it the fact that you're lining his pockets every time mm -hmm. you book a room there? I think it's probably the latter rather than the former. So the, the flattery thing, I think, um, you know, his ego is definitely an issue, but I don't think it's an issue in that, in that sense, because I think he, of all the things I will say about Trump, I think he is someone who very clearly has a focus on the bottom line and is willing 
to humiliate himself. Like, I mean, his whole thing is a reality TV star. Like, he knows that, like, any publicity is good publicity. And so he'll put himself in a situation where people will think bad things about him in order to make money. And the point is that his ego is still involved, but there's a little bit of subtlety more than he's often given mm-hmm. credit for. And it's all in pursuit of the bottom line, which, again, like, bad, you know, vice. But the presence of a particular vice, I, I think, in this instance, suggests that other vices might not be present. Hmm. I think that that's an interesting take on it. I don't quite agree. Sure. Um, I do think when you look at, for example, his Twitter feed, how quickly he will retweet or say nice things about somebody without checking the source simply because they said something nice to him. Or thinking, for example, um, the they had the one of the train hitting the person with a CNN label over the yeah. head as a cartoon. That's something where he didn't pause to think about whether this was something he should retweet or just, oh, he said something nice about me. It makes me look good. I'm going to do that. Um, and I, I, I personally feel that if – I think the reason he wants money – I mean, not to get too far afield, but to me it, it seems that the reason he wants money is because um, the amount of money you make is a reflection of your value and how much society esteems you. So it ultimately goes back to his ego for that reason. And I, but I think that if he just wanted to make money, I think he could have made way more money not being president, um, but doing some of the similar things. I don't know. It's it's hard to get inside somebody's head, head, especially when it's somebody who's so inconsistent. Sure, I I definitely agree with that last point. I think that when it comes to the whole like, you know, okay, first of all, I don't believe that. I mean, there's a kind of straightforward conspiracy characterization that this whole thing was just purely a money grab. And so he's going into the White House and it's just all about, you know, uh, seizing control of government in order to funnel resources towards himself. I, that's not that's not what I'm saying. Right. Um, there, I think we should be on the lookout for that as we always should be on the lookout. He certainly seems to have no concerns about getting money towards himself. Right, exactly. Um, But I I think it's pretty fair to say, I mean, like, Trump, from his own mouth, was shocked as much as anybody that he actually won. Yeah. I mean, more shocked than many people like ourselves who actually read the polls and understood that they meant that he had, like, a very good chance of winning. A very very plausible chance of winning. Um. You know, he seemed to be among these people who could not accurately read the polls and was was, was quite surprised that he won. Um, and had he, I, I agree with you that had he not won and had he parlayed, you know, a loss into um, some sort of right-wing media empire that he was mm-hmm. going to open up with Kushner or whatever, um, I think that would have been much more lucrative. I think that right. was, that, I think he would have enjoyed his life much more. You know? Yeah, and he would have salvaged <laughs> his ego by claiming it was rigged anyway. Exactly. Um, so I agree with you to that extent, but I don't think that really matters much because the whole point is, you know, once he won the election, it's not like he was going to say, oh, I could make more money this other way. I didn't actually want to win. Like, right. Then he was clearly. I mean, some people thought he was going to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That's and that, that, my point is that's not what I'm claiming. Right. Um, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, the ego, exactly. Ego is a huge part of it. I just, it just, you know, his willingness to, it goes, it goes into this wrestling stuff. 
right? Like the whole universe of, of symbolism that, um, you know, the, the wrestling world involves, um, he's very obviously a part of that. And the fact that he was willing to play the heel suggests a certain canniness, a certain subtlety, uh, that most of the time people don't think he has. Um, and I just think it's obvious that he has more of it than the, than, than the caricature that like he actually cares about. I, that he cares in some way that like changes his behavior in ways that matter about, you know, retweeting stuff like, yeah. Okay. She, he's, he's retweeting these things cause they say nice things about him, but is he going to go buy them a car? Is he going to like give mm. them a government job? I mean, actually maybe he will give them government jobs <laughs> if he can, but, um, I mean, Steve Bannon, that's, that's kind yeah, of, yeah, right. But, but that was, I mean, it's also like a calculation. I mean, he, he understood that Bannon could give him those people, you know, give him that wing of the, of the right. So anyway, no, it's, it's an interesting point. It's an interesting point, And I think it's one that um, we should talk about more. Yeah. And, at some point I am going to have to pause to note that we are now going to have to have an explanatory reference to what a heel is in professional wrestling, which is not the little explanatory reference. I thought I'd be writing for obscure things uh, <laughs> in the show notes, but uh, those of you listening to this on the podcast, I'll write that in the show notes. So you'll get to see what that is. Yeah. Um, which some of you may know, which I am only really familiar with because the show Glow came out this year, um, <laughs> which is quite good. I mean, anybody who loves Allison Brie should watch that show. It's it's very fascinating. Uh, all right. Well, uh, this covers most of the important parts we are going to talk about. There's obviously a lot more we could say. Um, there's a lot of disturbing similarities that Trump has with the Emperor Caligula, which was noticed by both Paul Krugman and I think Nicholas Kristof recently in unrelated op-eds. Um, which, uh, boy, I mean, Caligula is one of those people who it's an interesting comparison because you have somebody with a completely exaggerated sense of his own self, thinks he's a god. Um, he he is involved in a lot of the vices that we talk about here. Um, and his his term in office, as it were, ended up only lasting three years and I think 10 months, something like that, which is almost exactly the term a president would have. Um, which is why it's this is why we're all very thankful that we exist in the current American system where at the four year mark we have an election and that's how we get rid of people rather right. than what happened to Caligula, which is absolutely unacceptable in a civilized society. Right. Yeah. So, um, David, anything else you want to add before we close this out? Well, you know, you, you mentioned Caligula and it um, just jogged my memory, you know. One of the things that he was most famous for was um, having his horse become a senator. Uh, that was cool. Well, that was he cool. tried to appoint Inkitatus was his horse. He tried to name it Consul. Consul, excuse me. Yes. But, well, so, I mean, he, he engaged in this process where he debased the Senate by putting the horse into this setting and effectively daring the senators to, you know, to laugh or to, you know, sort of challenge him in some way for this. Um, and that was one of the examples of how the dictator um, debases and ruins the society by, um, 
by undermining these institutions that should uh, underpin governance. Uh, you know, he does it through this sort of scorn, and that's something we see with you know we see with Trump. But it's also something we saw in a way with Bush. No, um, I was hoping you were going to say Merrick Garland. Well, you know. Incatatus and, and Merrick Garland are both relaxing in the stable of broken dreams. <laughs> right. Poor, poor Incatatus. But, well, you, you, know, you were with, talking uh, about Harriet with, Myers is where exactly. I'm this is going. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And that, um, you know, he, I mean, he wasn't doing, I'm not claiming that he was doing it to like demean the Supreme Court, but, um, you know, the overall effect was that basically saying like, oh, you're a good person who's been good to me, so I'm going to make you a, su a Supreme Court justice, was one of his great sins. I mean, one of the great, right. huge, catast I mean, well, there, there are a lot of catastrophic mistakes that we could be talking about, but it was a terrible thing to do. Right. And, it, and it is part of this way in which um, again, with our show, you know, we look at Bush and we unpack this this weird sort of Bush nostalgia that's going on to see how much of it is, wh where it's coming from, what does it mean, and how we should think about it. And one way is, th is to say, look at a man who ha had personal virtues, great personal virtues that we can see better reflected by this glare from Trump. But despite those personal virtues still led the way to Trump. And I think one of the ways he, he did lead the way to Trump was with Harriet Myers. It's an interesting point. Um, yeah, we didn't get into nepotism and having a close circle of advisors that you bring with you that everybody has to deal with, um, which is a big part of what we've been seeing wrong with Trump with the um, Ivanka and Jared stuff. Yeah. That would have to be almost its own entire podcast on yeah. nepotism in general. Um but that's an interesting point about Harriet Myers. I had not made that connection to Caligula's horse and Harriet Myers, um, which is not a sentence I expected to say when I woke up this morning. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I would like to point out to those of us who have not heard my remarks on this that um, I came up with an idea last year, which is that uh, Caligula is, of course, not the proper name of the emperor. He's, this is why some entries in, say, Suetonius will say Caligula, parenthesis, Gaius. Um, mm -hmm. Because Caligula was a nickname that he got from as a child uh, going with his father on military campaigns, and a Caliga was a sort of military boot sandal thing, and um, he wore small versions of that, and the diminutive gave it a UL, so it became Caligula. And I had said that Trump should become known as Caistulus, uh, a diminutive form of Caistus, meaning glove, therefore he should be president, little gloves. Little gloves. I was very sad when I Googled it and found out somebody else had already thought of that. <laughs> I, I guess there's only so much you can do with uh, these great Latin ideas. Um, anyway, uh, are we ready for the sign-off here, Dave? Yeah, let's go ahead. All right. Uh, we ran a little long this week, but I think we had a nice discussion. Um, I'm going to end with one last note, which is I mentioned this before, but I'm going to state it more clearly here. I created a Gmail account just for um, any listener comments that you want to make. I've had a lot of friends message me after listening to some of these shows and want to debate things with me. Every single person has agreed about Cat's Claws. Um, 
The problem me, is yeah. it feels a little unfair to David to simply tell him that people told me this instead of reading aloud verbatim from a properly <laughs> uh, composed email. So uh, I looked at a couple possible um, uh, uh, addresses to use. I wanted to make it something like feedback at fhipodcast.com, but getting my own domain for the at seemed like work. And FHI podcast, I didn't go with because it was an FHI 360 podcast. And so I thought it would be safer to just go with straight up all one word, fear, honor, and interest podcast at gmail.com. Send your emails there if you want to say something. Um, I, I imagine everybody who's been messaging me on Instant Messenger or whatever its modern equivalent is, Gchat, will, I just have them all go through iMessage, uh, will, will probably just still say things to me rather than bother to compose an email. But if you have something you want me to read out loud as the first listener mail on the show, that's a good way to get at it. Um, and uh, I guess because we're – well, I could make that my sign-off for the week because we are short on time. But yeah. there's something timely that I have to quickly address, which is that my beloved Cleveland Indians just ended their 22-game winning streak. Um, and all the coverage of this and a lot of the pictures of this – Remind us how incredibly racist the Cleveland Indians logo is. <laughs> People who aren't from Cleveland or don't follow baseball that closely, I've had conversations where I mention the logo is racist. They say, what do you mean? I open up Sports Illustrated, show them a picture, and their jaw drops. The logo for the Cleveland Indians is pretty racist, and they've been trying to phase it out such that instead of using it on a lot of, of uh, Internet scores, they'll instead have a big red C for Cleveland which is the model I go with. I only buy Indian shirts that use the big C instead of the incredibly racist logo. Um, and uh, even though that gets confusing because there are a lot of teams that just have big red Cs, like the Cubs and the, the Cincinnati Reds. Um, but it's fascinating that I now live in D.C. where we have um, another Native American-themed team where instead of having a racist logo, it has a reasonably dignified logo, but an incredibly racist name. So... This is sort of a difficult thing for me as a liberal fan of the Cleveland Indians that, I mean, obviously I have no problem saying they need all of my friends, everyone who's my age, we all just say, get rid of the logo, get rid of the chief Wahoo, go to something more dignified. That's fine. But we know that after that fight is done, we're going to have to start wondering about the name Indians being problematic and talking about sports mascots is a longer thing that I should get into right now, but I just wanted to note that that's something that's been on my mind this week, because whenever I see news coverage of our streak, that Chief Wahoo logo is there, and it it doesn't make the team look good. So, yeah, hopefully they will change that soon. And then, you know, the best time to do that would be after we win the World Series uh, in, you know, a month and a half. So, anyway, till next week, goodbye. <laughs>